G'day and welcome to the City on a Hill podcast. I'm Guy, Senior Pastor of City on a Hill, a movement of churches across Australia united around the central mission of knowing Jesus and making Jesus known. Whether you're on your morning commute or sitting down with a warm cup of coffee, I hope this message fuels your faith, hope and love. And while we're here, let me encourage you to prayerfully consider supporting this ministry. You can do that by heading to cityonahill.com.au. God bless. Look forward to connecting soon. Esther 1, the whole thing. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel. In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendour and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when those days, these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king, and drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bista, Harbada, Bigta, and Abikta, Zetha, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Har- Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure towards all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshina, Shetha, Admetha, Tarshish, Meris, Marsina, and Memikan, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs? Then Memikan said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behaviour will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the Queen's behaviour will say the same to all the King's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the King, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus, and let the King give her royal position to another who is better than she." 
So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honour to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memucan proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Jordan. Excellent pronunciation. (laughs) Hey, friends, thanks so much for being with us. My name's Nick. get the joy of being the lead pastor of this church. Uh, And we are a church that, as we've heard about already this morning, uh, God is building around this vision to know Jesus and make Jesus known. And that means that every single Sunday, we want to do that. And we do it by opening God's word and hearing God speak to us through it. Today, he's going to do that in this epic story, even just the beginning of this epic story. Uh, We want to hear what he has to say. So before I get into it, I'm going to ask God that he would speak to us. So would you pray with me? Gracious God, we thank you so much for the opportunity to come before your word. We are hungry to hear from you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would speak to us and that you would lead us to the feet of Jesus, that we might, through this passage, through these events that took place some two and a half thousand years ago, we might be led to see you at work in our own lives and to be wholeheartedly trusting you and dependent upon you. And so come and help us. Uh, by your Holy Spirit, to have ears to hear, hearts that are soft to receive, uh, and give us the strength uh, to to live for you in our own day. We pray this in the mighty name uh, of Jesus and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Well, as as you've already heard this morning, uh, we today are embarking on a new journey, yet through a very well-trodden old path. We are turning to this epic story, the story of Esther events happened two and a half thousand years ago. This was a time and a place where God's people were fearful. They were isolated. They were alone. They were the the little guy in a period and in a kingdom dominated by the biggest world superpower that had ever been at the time, with the most dangerous and most powerful tyrannical king that had ever been at the time. Now, you are going to love this story. This is a story of sex and romance, of suspicion and espionage, of comedy but also twists, turns, and terror. And more than just a story, you know, if it wasn't in the Bible, this would be a great story that would have probably been handed down. Uh, more than just a story, it's history. This actually happened. And we're told that detail today about where and when and who was involved. But it's a history that's been compiled, and we'll see it as well today, compiled in such a way to powerfully and prophetically speak to us about who God is, and speak into our time about how he's working even now. We might be prone to ask questions. Where is God in my own life? Where is God on the world stage at the moment with all its horror, with all its terror, with all its war? Where is God when we don't see him? Where is God when the powers that be might be coming against his people, condemning and convicting And so how do we find hope in the midst of not seeing God before us and before our eyes? Today we're going to start this journey. It's going to be an eight-week walkthrough of this historical story in the book of Esther. It's a book full of irony, insight, tension. Uh, If you haven't read it, let me recommend you read it. It'll take about half an hour. 
Before we ourselves dive in to this first chapter, it is worth just getting our bearings. Sometimes what we have to do whenever we come to a new book of the Bible. If you are new to the Bible, uh, well, you know that the Bible is one book, but made up of lots of books, 66 of them, in fact. And there are 39 books in what's called the Old Testament and 27 in the New. And those in the Old were all written BC, before Jesus arrived on the scene. And that's very helpful to keep in mind uh, because it means that where we find ourselves, we should, we should ask and have the right expectations of it. Through that whole 39-book journey of the Old Testament before Jesus arrives, the whole story, God is, is communicating something to us about himself and he's doing it through this, this meta story. He's trying to tell us who he is, but he's trying to also point us to his response to how we as his creatures have ignored and rejected and sinned against him. And his response is that he wants to pursue, he wants to find He wants to form and fashion a people together whom he has forgiven and freed from that sin, from that rejection. And to tell us that story, he does it in all sorts of means, through poems, through proverbs, through people, uh, through stories, through principles he gives us, and also through, through narratives like what we come to today. That meta story crescendos in Jesus, the, the high point of what God has done for us in response to our sin. But it does mean that when we do open up any book in the Old Testament, we need to know that we're, we're, we're kind of looking at a mountain. But it's just one mountain in a, in a great mountain range on, in the distance of which we see Everest, King Jesus. And every one of those mountains is building toward that big Everest. Every one of those mountains is revealing something more of the journey or the stepping stone toward that big Everest. Everest. And so that means that every time uh, we turn to the Old Testament, and we're going to do it for eight weeks, uh, we're, we're turning into the text. We want to zoom to the text, see what, see what was going on. But the text itself will probably force us to zoom out, given the context, to what God is doing through this moment to tell us about Jesus. Uh, we're going to see that today. Today we come to what is really the introduction to the introduction. Uh, and so we're not going to meet our heroine, Esther, Uh, This is somewhat of a prologue to the story. We do get a picture, though, of the time in which she arose, and particularly of the king who helped her rise to her place of prominence and influence, but also of the the context that surrounded it, and therefore what we might learn about how God might be at work even in our own context today. So do join me in Esther chapter 1. We're going to walk through uh, the story, uh, point out some of the the colour of what's going on in the story, and then I'll end by connecting it to where we are at today. Uh, As we go to get to the text, before we we start reading, uh, this story uh, does remind me of of another story, a story that might kind of uh, typify what we're going to see over the next eight weeks, and particularly today. In 2016, there was a, a British guy named Ben Innes. Uh, he was a passenger on an Egypt air flight to Cairo. Uh, and during the journey, a, a, another passenger hijacked the plane. It was terrible. The wor- this is the worst possible, the stuff of nightmares when you're traveling on a plane. And the hijacker claimed, I've got a vest full of explosives. Unless you turn this plane to land in Cyprus, everybody's dead. And so Naturally, in that situation, you you do what the hijacker says. Your life is in his hands. He has all the power. And so the plane landed in Cyprus. The passengers, most of them were let off, except for three of them who were kept hostage and four crew members also kept hostage. Ben was one of those hostages. And so Ben's life is literally on the line. His future looks 
grim, let alone not very long-lasting at this point. It is all going to end. The hijacker had all the power. But in a very surprising turn of events, Ben decided in the midst of the fear, in the midst of the, the tension, in the midst of the uncertainty, he wanted to pop that tension by adding a bit of levity uh, and, and trying to keep himself positive. And so he turned to the hijacker and he asked him for a selfie. And we have, this, is, this is the picture that is behind me. This is, this is the selfie that Ben asked for uh, with the, the hijacker on the plane with his life in his hands. Uh, and there you can see him kind of funnily grimacing next to a guy who has what was purported to be uh, uh, an explosive vest. It turned out that it was all a facade. It was all a lie. There was no uh, explosives in the vest. It wasn't real. The hijacker was arrested. Everybody survived and was safe. It was a good ending to the story. But Ben was asked after the case, dude, what's with the cell? What, what, what's with the, what, what were you thinking? And it turned out that, that in his mind, he wanted to bring positivity to what was going on, to this, this kind of nightmare scenario. Here he is uh, with this particular photo, this moment where he is exposing the ridiculousness of what has gone on. And I bring that up because there is a bit of Book of Esther about that particular photo and his particular actions, because the Book of Esther is going to show up for us the powers that be in our world. It is going to use humour, as we'll see throughout the book, irony, satire, to point out that the powers of our world are fake, that the danger that we might have threatened upon us from them isn't final. And that as Psalm 2 says, when the kings of this earth flex their muscle, the Lord sits in the heavens and he laughs. We're going to see that throughout Esther and we're going to get started in that direction today. Let's dive into Esther chapter 1. The author wants just, just to know where we are right now. It says this, Now in the days of Ahasuerus, The Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. In those days, when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel. And so we meet the king, Ahasuerus. Uh, Ahasuerus is the Hebrew transliteration version uh, of what is in Greek known as the name Xerxes, who you might have heard of in history class. uh, Or if you've got the NIV version, they use the name Xerxes. We're talking about the same guy here. Ahasuerus and Xerxes. This is Xerxes the first. Uh, he is depicted rather inaccurately, if you remember, the movie 300. Uh, I think I've got a picture of how he looked in the movie 300. Uh, this was him. He was kind of depicted as some kind of eight-foot uh, god uh, whom the spirits kind of submitted to. Uh, and I have another picture of where he is more accurately etched into a rock in one of the cities that he built. That was the real Xerxes. Uh, a little bit, A little bit kind of deflating compared to the one in 300. Uh, Yet the the depiction in the movie 300 has something going for it because in his day, Xerxes was known as a god king. He was the god of the earth, the god of the water, the god of the air. He was worshipped as a god. This is the son of Darius, who you might be familiar with if you've read the book of Daniel. Darius was a trailblazer for world superpower villains. Uh, He was, uh, I guess, leading the pack in extending the empire, very innovative and very successful and accomplished. He himself, Darius, had taken the throne eight years after another guy who we know from the Bible, but also history, Cyrus the Great. Cyrus was known for his uh, kind of way that he, he kind of 
won people to himself, the citizens to himself through respect and through uh, treating people well. And we know that from the Bible story where he, he let the Jews return to Jerusalem after the Babylonian captivity in 538 BC. And so Ahasuerus now is on the scene, stepping into that legacy of leading the world's superpower. Cyrus had essentially invented superpowers, such was his dominance. Darius had built upon that, and now it was Xerxes' turn to flex his own muscle. He had all the votes in an autocratic and despotic system. He holds all the wealth, and he wants us to know about that power, and he wants us to know about that wealth. We'll see that in a moment. But the author also tells us that we're here in Susa, the citadel. Susa is, if you know your geography now, in southwest modern-day Iran. Susa uh, tells us that we are far away from where God's people should be. Because it's been almost 60 years now that, since Cyrus said, hey, the Jews, you can go back to Jerusalem. And yet here we are 60 years on, with a lot of them still in Susa, some 1,500 kilometres away from Jerusalem. They're not yet in God's presence, not yet in God's place of God's promise they're still isolated and alone. And for now, the author wants us to know just how vast this kingdom was. 127 promises, uh, provinces stretching from India all the way down uh, through the Middle East, down into Africa, into Ethiopia. All of the known world at the time, except for little Greece, is under the reign of Xerxes or Ahasuerus. All of the known world is led from this citadel, Susa. In Susa, Daniel had had a vision. In Susa, Nehemiah, in decades to come, would be the cupbearer to the king. Susa is the administrative capital of this Persian kingdom. It's where the kings would reside in winter, where it wasn't so hot, and then in summer, they'd head up to the mountains where it was a little bit cooler. And so this is the, the Canberra of the kingdom. And yet Canberra doesn't do it justice because you wanted to be in Susa. You wanted to go to Susa. Susa was the place where, uh, you know, it's called a citadel. It's not just the royal palace, but it's also where uh, ASIO would be, where the ATO would operate out of, where the defence force would be. It was like every kind of system of power was here in the citadel. And so the citadel, it stands as not just a historical place here in Susa, but also I get a bit of a, a prototype or a picture of the heart of worldly power that even continues today. To emphasise that power in the text, the Hazarus decides to flex his muscle in the third year of his reign. Let's read in, in verse 3. In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendour, the pomp of his greatness for many days... 180 days. And so Ahasuerus, we know, ruled from 486 BC to 465 BC. That means this puts us in the third year of his reign. We're teleported back into 483 BC. And what is Ahasuerus doing? He is throwing a six-month-long Xerxes Fest party, a feast designed to show off his splendor, his majesty, his glory, his prosperity, his power, the lavishness and the inf infiniteness of his wealth. 
Now, thankfully, we, we, we do have corroborating sources in the annals of history uh, around what was going on here, and some of them reveal a little bit more of the detail behind what was happening here. Not only in the third year did he hold this six-month party, but there's a Greek historian, Herodotus, who tells us that in the third year of Xerxes I, Ahasuerus, he was holding a war council. And so likely what's happening behind this feast was a feast for all the people and everyone who's important is coming to Susa for six months of partying. There's a meeting within the meeting. There's, there's, some, there's some kind of hustling going on in the situation room while everybody's upstairs partying because Xerxes, Ahasuerus, is, is working out and asking questions about whether he should go and take over that little bit of the known world of the time that wasn't yet submitted to his reign in Greece. And so he's got everybody there, not only because he is a party guy that wants to have a good time, but because really he's trying to manipulate people, he's trying to seduce people into giving up their lives for his kingdom in a fight that he's about to announce in taking over Greece. He wants everybody on his side. He wants to convince his leaders and his military to give their lives up for this glory, give, it, give your lives up for this pomp, for this splendor, this wealth. Herodotus gives us a bit of a picture into the kind of guy this what uh, Xerxes was. Uh, there's a moment where he, he relays that there was this conversation uh, amongst the military council, and he was full of yes men. Everybody around him was saying, man, you are, you're the greatest, oh great king. You're, this, this is the perfect thing we should do. We should go and kill Greece. We should take over. And then Xerxes' uncle pipes up, and he just you know, very subtly and humbly says, oh, great king, might it not be a, a good idea in the midst of us planning this great strategy to, to perhaps even just consider that it might be good reason not to go and take over Athens? And even just at the mere suggestion that perhaps we should consider thinking about potentially maybe perhaps hearing out why it wouldn't be a good idea, that guy was condemned. He was out of the kingdom, not able to fight in his army. And so this is the kind of guy that we're dealing with here. It's his way or the highway. And he's called this six-month-long party. And then we read, after the six months booze fest, he has a seven-day party. He calls another meeting. The author goes at great lengths to set up just how ridiculous and opulent this was for us. He tells us that the furniture and the fittings were lavish, that even the couches were gold. That's when you know you've probably gone too far and having too much gold. Your I don't know how that could be comfortable, but your couches are gold. And in verse 7, we're told, drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. And so now we get some insight into the moral flavor of the kingdom. Now this place isn't just decadent, but also in a sense depraved. The people could drink however much or however little they like. And that's the promise of this citadel, the promise of worldly power, that you can be rich, you can be powerful, you can be free. But even as we read the way it's enacted, that something about this power, this freedom, smells off. Because that freedom, even though everyone's under compulsion, you're only free when the king tells you that you're free. It's bound by the edict of the king. What he says goes. We'll see later in the story that whenever the king says something, that is final. 
cannot even be reversed. And that'll be an important detail for the rest of the story. This is no democracy. There's this veneer of freedom, but behind it, the reality of a complete and utter and total power in the hands of the king. It's a might makes right kind of world, and he has all of the might. We see that play out in the next scene. Verse 10, on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehman, Bistha, Habona, Bigtha, and Abigtha, Zetha, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown, in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. And so the drinks are flowing freely. Uh, the, the guys have been on the gas for six months and seven days now. And as if we needed any more proof that drinking makes you do dumb stuff, here's one of the dumbest things that he does. The first dumb thing is that Ahasuerus calls another meeting. And so he's had a six-month-long meeting, a seven-day meeting, and now he calls a meeting on the seventh day to ask his eunuchs to do something particular for him. You can just imagine Xerxes back then asking his kind of advisors, hey, guys, let's take this offline. You ever been in a meeting, and in the meeting you decide there's a particular decision that you need another meeting? You're in the meeting already. Just decide the thing. It's in the meeting. But you can see this, this veneer of power and freedom. Well, there's the same bureaucracy that we might be frustrated with in our own day as well. And every one of those meetings gets worse and worse and worse. So Hazarus now just has kind of like his, his clique, his, his, his boys club around him. And so you can imagine the scene, there's, there's powerful men boozed up, spread out. Hazarus has just shown for, for six, day, uh, six months plus a week his, his state of his power, his wealth, his kingdom. Now he wants to show that not only can he just make laws at the drop of a hat, he can tell people. In fact, he can tell the queen exactly what to do and come and do for him, his trophy wife, Queen Vashti. Now, Vashti, her name literally means most beautiful. Now, we don't know exactly what is being asked of her. Is it, hey, darling, could you, could you just come out and, and let everyone, you know, come, and, come and meet everybody? I want everyone, I'm, I'm, I'm proud of you. I want, I want everybody to meet you. But there is a sense in the text that it's something more provocative than that because we're told that she was told she needs to wear her crown, and yet we're not told that she needed to wear anything else. And so we get a sense that this is inappropriate, this is degrading, this is dehumanizing. That in this place of luxury and largesse, of freedom and fornication, well, actually, you get turned into an object. The men around the king, we hear that they're actually eunuchs. And so the king has the boys' club around him, but every one of those men have been castrated by him so that he can protect his own power and they can't live up to their potential. The women around the king are objectified, treated as mere playthings to use to build his own fake fan base. Now, given who is asking this of her, we might forgive Queen Vashti for just pursuing the route of self-preservation, just going along with it, because who knows what he will do who is going to refuse Xerxes, Ahasuerus, the king? We'll find out later that it is very dangerous to come before the king if you haven't been asked. But we see in this text that it is also very dangerous to not come before the king when you have been asked. And so what does Vashti do? We read in verse 12, but Queen Vashti refused to come. 
at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. And so whether she saw herself as, I've got to stand up for all women right now, or whether she just was frustrated and didn't want anybody telling her what to do, Queen Vashti says no. And that no strikes at the heart of the citadel of worldly power at the time. Ahasuerus has no idea what to do. And so for all his pomp, for all his show, he has to call his advisors in just to work out, how do I respond to somebody saying no to me? He can't quite fathom it. All he knows is that he's angry. He's been disrespected. He's been embarrassed. And so what should he do? And the men that come toward him, his, his advisors, they, they are f- obviously feeding off his insecurity. And they themselves start to speculate and, and think, man, this, this, this no is going to go global. We're, 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 we're kind of on the precipice of first wave feminism here, 2,000 years before it. You know, like, we're we're, we're going we're to put a stop to this. Every man in the kingdom is going to be told, no, we're going to get ahead of this. And so one called uh, Memekin in particular says in verse 19, if it please the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus and let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. And so you can imagine in the advisors of the king that, hey, if the queen loses her place, we kind of get elevated. One less voice for him to listen to means more of our voice that he's going to listen to. That's a good power move for them. But he advises something incredibly dumb. He's a terrible advisor because this no, this refusal of Vashti, there's probably about 10 people in the world who know about it. It's happened behind the scenes. He didn't make his run sheet public to everybody about how he wanted to, at this point, bring out his trophy wife. Nobody knows about it. And Memekin comes forward and says, this is so disrespectful. This is so embarrassing, King. This makes you look so ridiculous and poor and, and weak. We need to tell the whole kingdom about it. We need to tell everybody about what's happened to you, the disrespect that's been taken on, the no that you received from Vashti. And so the solution is to issue a new order, not just about her, but about all wives or all women. Now, it's not the point of the chapter, but it does tell us, doesn't it, that the pursuit of worldly power, that that ambition, that get ahead at all costs, that be close to the movers and shakers kind of desire, well, actually, not only does it end up dehumanizing us, it also ends up dividing us, pitting us against one another. And so this edict goes out, all men should be master of their households. And so instead of this refusal being confined to the meeting within a meeting within a meeting within a meeting, everybody in the known world knows. And so our chapter ends. Think about the the contrast from the beginning of the chapter to the end. At the beginning, here is the Ahasuerus, the one who reigned 127 provinces from India to Ethiopia, the one with gold couches, the one with gold vessels, calling and telling everybody and funding a six-month party. The whole world is under his feet and under his scepter. His kingdom is grand. His glory is obvious. And by the end of it, he is shown to be a very little, petty man. This is the citadel of worldly power. 
It's dangerous. It's depraved. But it's also insecure. It's dehumanizing. It's degrading. And so what are we, two and a half thousand years later, what are we meant to glean from Esther chapter 1? Well, of course, this is just the intro to the intro of a story that's going to play out before us. But Esther chapter 1 does point out to us already the, the fickleness, the folly of worldly power. This story might be very distant from us, but it is not too distinct from our own human experience because you and I are living in a world that runs on the same toxins of wealth, power, feigned freedom, and ambition. Just like Sousa, our world is seductive. It's constantly selling itself to us as worthy of giving our lives to. It promotes itself as the place to make it, the place to be seen, the place to be known, the place to find freedom, independence, fame. But as we step into it, some of us have felt it, it, it takes a toll on us. Maybe sometimes we give our lives to our careers, but then we end up being treated like pawns on a company chessboard. We want to kind of be known for the kind of people that we are, and yet our personalities, our temperaments, our skills, our education, we're, we're just a row on an Excel spreadsheet that's ranked against other cogs in the machine. Our physical appearance, our charisma, our emotional intelligence. We can feel judged like the front cover of a book without it ever being open to see the content of our character. Sometimes, like the city of Susa, we're, we're, we're lulled into the centre, into the, the banquet of human power, intoxicated by the, the, the potential. If we could only get up there, the partnerships, the prosperity that will be available to us. I was interested this week to tune into the, the new doco series by the, the ABC called Nemesis. Uh, it's about the, the power struggle at the top of the Liberal Party uh, during those years when we kind of changed prime ministers as much as we changed bedsheets between uh, you know, Abbott and Turnbull, Turnbull and, and, and Morrison. It's a very Australian thing for our national broadcaster to kind of expose the dark underbelly of our government leaders. I know they've done it for the last 30 years with these kinds of documentaries. But in it, you, you hear about all the backroom fights and the backstabbing and the tensions. And really, you see, it's all driven by self-interest. That the very people who call themselves ministers, you know, ministers is a Bible word. It comes out of the word for servant. People who call themselves ministers, even themselves, can't get away from that Hunger for power, that hunger to have your name on the wall, your picture on the wall. And so this is the citadel of worldly power in our modern day, something that, that tugs at our hearts, all of our hearts, even now. But just like then, it now also takes a toll on us. And so where is God in the midst of all that we have to process and think through and the ways that we get affected and burdened by being at the epicenter of human power? Where is God in the midst of this machine that we find ourselves in? That's going to be a question that comes up almost every single week uh, over the next eight weeks. 
today, I just want us to see what Esther tells us, the book of Esther tells us, about the world that's being set up here and how that might relate to the world in which we live. Because even though there is that dark underbelly, we also see some hints in Esther chapter 1 that there is some seeds of, of hope that behind the scenes, God is going to orchestrate something, something incredible to rescue his people from the citadel of worldly power. See, Susa, the citadel, doesn't just give us a picture of, of decadence and debauchery, of what ancient Persia under this particular king, Ahasuerus, was like. It also reminds us of another story that was being written that started in a very similar place hundreds of years before. Because in the beginning of the Bible, God's people go wrong. We reject God from being our king, reject his word, and carve out our own path and go our own way through our first parents, Adam and Eve. But it's not very long after that, near Susa, in a place called Ur, just a couple of hundred metres away from Susa, there in southwest Iran, God calls out a man named Abram. And Abram was old, and Abram's wife was barren. And Abram had no children. He said to this guy, through you, I'm going to make a family. And through that family, all the world will be blessed. I'm going to bless those who bless you. I'm going to curse those who curse you. Ur and Susa are about the same distance, 1,500 kilometers from Jerusalem to the west. And as God called out Abraham, even all the chips were stacked against him. Even though his future did not look anything close to being bright, we see God start his own story of building his own citadel. And yet his wouldn't be one built with worldly power and pomp and splendor, but rather his would be down through a family, a people called out from the world. And so as we open up the book of Esther and we look at this citadel of Susa, we're reminded that though we might feel far from God's presence, even in those moments where we feel that, God himself is still working out his promises. One of the famous factoids about the book of Esther is it's the only book in the Bible where God isn't mentioned. There's not at all a lot of religion going on in the book of Esther. And so we're going to be forced to ask, where is he? God, where are you in this? But in the silence, God is working all things for the good of those who are his. Working for his people. Theologian Karen Jobes says, The great paradox of Esther is that God is omnipotently present, even where God is most conspicuously absent. And we see that very obviously in this refusal, the no of Vashti, which ended up having her be expelled from the kingdom, created a vacancy where God would insert his own queen, his own woman in the place of prominence to fulfill his promises, to punish his enemies. And so we're going to see that throughout the book of Esther. This is what we see in the, the lives of the citadel of worldly power, that God is building his own kingdom, his own citadel, in but not of our world, with those who are in but not of the powers of this world. He's even doing it now. In the mundane moments of your life, when you least suspect God's presence to be close by, well, God promises that he's working all things 
for the good of those who are his, even now. Ahasuerus is, is alluring for us. We want to be around people like Ahasuerus. If we might be around him, maybe through the touching the, the hem of his garment, we might get some power. We might get some influence. We might get some prosperity. But there's a better way. Just as in Esther, that God work, will work for his people. So even now, God is working for his people. And so those initial promises to, to Abraham, a thousand years before the events we're reading here, well, those promises led Abraham and his people to walk 1,500 kilometers toward the west, toward the promised land. But it also led them, and God miraculously working through them, down through the generations. So Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and so on and so forth, all the way down till God inserted in that story his own son, Jesus. In the very first recorded words of Jesus in the eyewitness account of Mark, he says, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. And so in the kingdom that comes as per God's promises, we see a complete contrast of kingdoms between this world that Xerxes, Ahasuerus, is reigning over and the world that God is building, the kingdom that God is building even now. Rather than being opulent and powerful, God sends his son as a baby, wrapped in swaddling cloth, lying in a manger. Rather than wooing people to give their lives to him through large displays of extravagance and temptation, God serves us himself by laying down his life for us in our place on the cross. Rather than merely promising freedom, but bringing it to pass through edict and law, God promises us freedom and then truly sets us free in Jesus. Freedom from a guilty conscience, freedom from the trappings and the temptations of the world. Rather than dehumanizing us and degrading us, using us as objects for whatever power play those who have the authority want to use us for, now God restores our humanity. God realigns us with the source of our spiritual oxygen, God himself, and sets us into right relationship with him. Rather than twisting and contorting the relationships between us, his people, making men and women at war at each other, God gets us back together. And he says, hey, love one another even as I have loved you. And so you and I, we, we inhabit two citadels in our lives, one foot planted in each. Yes, we must visit and inhabit the citadel of worldly power. But if we are trusting in Jesus, we must be defined by the citadel that God is building in our world through his son, Jesus. And so Esther 1 isn't about you. The book of Esther isn't about us, but it does lead us to think about which kingdom we're going to be defined by most. It causes us to ask us the question, which kingdom is reigning over me at the moment? Which king has its power over me at the moment? And perhaps the conflict and the contrast between those kingdoms can be most easily expressed through one of the key themes of Esther. We'll see it all throughout the book, a lot of feasting and banqueting. Here, in Persia, in Susa, there's a feast where the king is putting himself forward, displaying his power, his wealth, his pomp, his pride. One day, you and I are going to be in a banquet. You and I are going to be in a feast with King Jesus. And it won't be about displaying his power so much as about glorying in his grace and in his mercy. 
It won't be a, a little man pretending to be bigger than he really is. It'll be an infinitely big Jesus, the one who became little for us. Then we're not going to sit back and be impressed. We're going to lean in and celebrate all that God has done for us. And so friends, strap yourself in for the journey ahead. We've got eight weeks of Esther challenging us and delighting us with this story that God's writing through history. The book of Esther is going to show us how God worked in this moment, but also how God is working in your moments. God is building a kingdom in our world that cannot and will not be stopped. And God has set upon the throne of that kingdom in the heart of its power a true and better king, King Jesus. We're going to go to him now. And we're going to sing about his goodness and his grace to us. Let's pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the ways that the start of the story of Esther compels us to look forward to the fullness and the fulfillment of the story that you've been writing in our world in Jesus. Lord, we pray for your help because we confess that just like the city of Susa, just like the allure and the grandeur of the powers of that day, Lord, we sense in our own hearts the allure and the seduction of the powers of our own day. And so, Lord, we ask that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you might compel us to be a people who see what you've been building in the world, the power, the kingdom that you have been building that led to Jesus and continues in Jesus. We thank you that your kingdom is at hand. We pray that by your Holy Spirit, we would be a people of repentance and faith who repent and believe in the gospel, that you have come to rescue us out of this world. And yet even while we remain in this world, may we not be of it. Fill us with your spirit that that might be true of us. Help us be defined by the upside down nature of the values of your kingdom. That we might be a people of love, that we might be a people of dependence, that we might be a people of weakness that are spurred on by your strength. And so come and do something great in us and Lord, we commit our next eight weeks to you. And we pray that this story that you wrote two and a half thousand years ago, Lord, that it might echo down even to our own day, that it might fill our minds and enlarge our hearts to see you at work in our own lives and to therefore have ourselves be more wholeheartedly committed to trusting and following you. We pray that Jesus would be the King upon which we live our lives this week and in these days. Bless us, we pray, and point us to him. And may you receive the glory that you deserve in our worship even in this moment. It's in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.